0: Why We Bleep is sponsored by Signal Sounds. When I purchase things on the internet, I have a few very specific criteria. 1. Are the goods readily available and shipped worldwide? 2. Are the people who sell said goods nice and cuddly? And 3. Do they sell boring old normal stuff that I've heard of? Or do they also sell... Weird things from exotic companies like Derpfer, which I've never heard of. These are the reasons why signal sounds suit me to the ground. They sell incredibly weird things like the Polyend Tracker, which is like a calculator spreadsheet that makes jungle. They've got a thing called a Fraptools renso which is an analog FM through zero super oscillator, but looks like a close-up of a spider's face. And finally, they sell this tiny, thin little DivKid run step module. A high quality, 6 output random voltage module engineered for minimal pitch drop and maximum modulation in a compact 4 HP form factor. Heard of that one? So, to purchase things you've heard of and purchase things you haven't, go to the website of Signalsounds.com. That website is Signalsounds.com. Merry Heck. Wow. Um, The world is changing. The world is changing. The world has always been changing, but I hope that the last month and a bit has proved that the world is changing for the better. Feels like things could really genuinely change, but it won't happen without pressure. It needs pressure for things to change because it's far too cosy for people who are in charge. I hope that the social force online and in the streets can really, really drive the wedge to change some of these structures that have been set in place. Certainly in terms of improving the way that police seem to treat the citizens of America, but globally, that we realise how this system has been gamed and that we make it fairer. It's funny, last month someone commented on the podcast and said, don't politicise things, stick to synths. And while my response to that person was to block them, whilst also saying, go start your own podcast then, I feel it's very important to point out that this is not politicising electronic music in any way, shape or form, because anyone who knows anything should know that despite the fact that I said last month that sure, Kraftwerk pioneered the concept of electro, it is not white people who made electro what it really is. It's black people. Electro, techno, house music, dance music has been overwhelmingly pioneered by black musicians and many of them in America. Their music is the concrete foundation upon which this entire industry, in all of its forms, of the clubs, of the companies, of the synthesizers, of the modules, of the software, we owe literally everything (laughs) to black musicians. So to pretend like it's not relevant to this podcast would be absurd. And I'm not going to do that. So... I hope we all have the energy, and especially we referring to white people, to keep sticking up and putting effort into dismantling the systems that are making this an unfair world if you're not white. There is an excellent sort of disambiguation page if you're looking for ways to help. It is linked below and linked in the descriptions of this podcast, but it's Black Lives Matters. I've been donating money throughout the month, variously to various different organizations and with various drives. Uh, one of which I really want to shout out here, but it's especially relevant to the Synthi world, and that is Afro Rack. Afro Rack. That is a wonderful group of people in Chicago who put on workshops and tutorials to help young black people in Chicago learn modular synthesis. Couldn't be more up our strasser here. Especially if you listen back to the episode with Liz Dobson, where we talked about education, I am incredibly privileged (laughs) as a person. And, you know, therefore I have been able to have the time, the luxury, and been given the money to be able to buy some music equipment that started me off. Not everyone gets this luxury or is in a position or has people of influence. What Afro Rack are doing is providing that, especially for people who just wouldn't necessarily have another outlet. It's allowing modular synthesis to be something that kids can discover as well as music production in general. I think of Mike Huckabee from Chicago as well, you know, who's a wonderful educator, sadly passed away very recently. Uh, Just highlights, you know, some of the people that Mike Huckabee fostered and worked with come on to have careers and toured the world. People need access to this stuff. So please consider donating some cash to AfroRack. They are afrorack.org. That is afrorack.org. I have donated. Please, if you can, consider donating today. I'm extremely pleased to present a chat with someone who I've been trying to have a chat with for quite some time. We've embraced the distance of the internet and I've used a funky system to be able to chat to Hazel Mills. Hazel is a Bristol-based pianist, vocalist and songwriter who you may well have seen on stage playing with Florence and the Machine, with Goldfrapp, Birdie and something we particularly talk about in the podcast the Will Gregory Moog Ensemble, which is just a truly wonderful, wonderful thing where many musicians on stage play synthesizers like kind of Wendy Carlos's sort of gorgeous orchestral synthesizer music it is indescribably exquisite. And Hazel is one of the ensemble and she is an astonishingly talented musician and player. Hazel has been making music for many, many, many years, but before that would, would play the piano. Uh, initially starting out with just playing with her uncle just for fun, we talk about how she just realised she had this kind of drive, this need to create songs. And we talk about this and many, many other things. It's a really nice long kind of meandering chat. We talk about playing with the Moog Ensemble. I'm going to put a link in the description to this piece called Oceans of Heaven by Eddie Parker, which we talk about. And that is... Like, all of the synthesizers are playing a kind of swell. They're all at once swelling a massive chord into existence. And interestingly, as Hazel talks about... Just using the filter. They don't use the volume knobs, they use the filter. So everything kind of swells in that kind of low pass gate sense that they become duller and brighter and it's like it's proper like hairs on the back of your neck stuff. We talk about her studio and synths, like Desert Island synths, favorite kit. We even get into talking a bit about film and Hitchcock. Because Hazel, if you follow Hazel on Twitter, you can kind of, there's a real interest in film and sort of that side, which obviously is innately tied with music. And 60s experimental music, minimalism, Steve Reich, Morton Feldman, and many other things. It is, as I say, an interesting, flowing chat. But before we speak to Hazel, we have one more sponsored message. Why We Bleep is also sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is a truly wonderful thing. It's an online learning platform. It hosts online video classes and in just a wonderfully mind-boggling array of choices. So anything that you're particularly interested in learning and, and absorbing yourself in, there is almost certainly a class in that subject. Including film and video, good stuff to do with colour grading, using lenses and lighting to convey emotion, music production, fine art, animation, creative writing. I've been trying to design some Milo Melodies merchandising. So actually just get into the design great stuff. How to make merch with Draplin. This is Aaron Draplin of the Draplin Design Company teaching literally the whole process on how to make merchandising from like selecting vendors to how to sort of modify design so that they'll work better on a pin badge versus a like a sewing patch is really well done like he's very funny it's very like entertaining not only did it actually teach me some of the like tenets basically to bear in mind but also just genuinely inspiring like hearing from someone whose passion you know whose entire career has been this is made me think more about, you know, I should do more with it. It's not just it's not just making some crap to put on Teespring or something just to, to sell some shirts or I should do more with it and, I, and be passionate about it. Like it genuinely inspired me to do do a better job. So yes, I am a big believer in this. I think it's good. It's a force for good in the world. So if you are interested in learning some new skills, please do check that out. Plus it's also less than $10 a month with an annual subscription but I've got a juicy deal for you. The first 1,000 of my subscribers to click the link in the description to this video podcast will get a two-month free trial of premium membership so you can explore your creativity. Go and have yourself a free two months and learn some stuff. Learn yourself some new skills. There's even one on how to make a podcast. Might take that one. So thank you, Skillshare. And on that subject, let's speak to Hazel Mills. Thanks.
1: My initial background was, like, classical, really. I'd learned the piano one from the age of six and played pianos. And I grew up with a piano and I kind of miss that action because I don't I still don't own as a as a grown up. <laughs> I still don't own a real piano. I have access to
0: one. What sort of piano did you have in the the place, in your folks' house?
1: Um I've got absolutely no idea. <laughs> it was it was an yeah, it was an upright. I swear it was white at one point and then it was brown. So it, they'd painted it.
0: <laughs> well, it's been like a really big accident or something. But...
1: <laughs> I don't know.
0: I do Yeah, my folks have got an upright and it's, um, I really like them. And uh, I mean, when I was a little kid, I used to like, there's a little catch on the upright that, uh, that holds in the sort of front panel. And basically when you twang it, it makes the most amazing bow sort of sound.
1: Amazing. No, that's good cuz it's all about getting inside the piano really getting the front off and
0: but the only problem is that because uprights are upright you can't lay things over the keys or did you have you found ways to sorry over the strings you know like prepare them
1: no that's that's why ideally one day i'd like to have like more than one piano one that i can just leave alone and sounds amazing and one that i can abuse and do things to but yeah ideally a cl- obviously, a grand piano you can lay things on, but no. I remember I watched a video. I think it was Cuckoo. You know, mm. he did like he did a where he would just put gaffer tape on the strings with an upright piano, mm. and it would create a kind of clunky sound, which is great.
0: So it wouldn't be like the felt felt muted. It was like a bonk.
1: No, it was like a, a yeah. It was quite a a clunky sound. It was great.
0: <laughs> that is quite weird the yeah like the prepared piano thing is just such a beautiful interesting concept That it's um i never yeah my my gran had a so had like a baby grand i think i do remember i remember like resting my nails against the strings and kind of doing and maybe doing some of that but I also remember with the, my parents' upright, it's just the sound it makes when you really slam hard on the um, sustain, I don't even know the name of it, the right-hand pedal. Yeah. And it kind of goes like, the whole thing just goes, <laughs> and you hear all the strings sort of vibrate at once.
1: Yeah. I was just going to say one more thing. I was actually thinking about this earlier today, about the, the kind of the reverb and the resonance that you get naturally from just having the pedal down. The sustain pedal down in a piano, and sometimes I like to get my head inside and listen. And I wondered about like re. I bet someone's done this reamping something like a vote, the recording of a vocal or something, and playing it through a speaker inside the piano
0: hmm.
1: with the pedal down. I shouldn't say this out loud.
0: You're giving I away all your just good do stuff. It. Yeah, um, you should just do it. it's
1: probably been done before, but yeah, that's what I want to do. That's what I'll do when I get my piano.
0: Oh, that's a great idea. what if you had the um like an ebo or something could you have an Ebo that you sort of that you instead of it just being a straight vibration because do Ebos vibrate at a very specific frequency presumably they do, but could you get an Ebo that you could almost play like voltage into and it would oscillate the strings at different rates Whoa. depending you could that could exist surely
1: yeah i don't because i don't really fully Understand how an ebo works. Is that what it is? It's a, a specific
0: frequency. I think so. Well, basically it my understanding is it's like uh, some kind of electromagnet and it's it's turning itself on and off really fast, and so that when you put it near a guitar string that's metal, then it it's making literally making the guitar string vibrate as if you twanged it with your finger, but without the twang. And so you get like a soft attack and an infinite sustain, obviously. But but it must be oscillating at a particular frequency but then that's isn't that a function of the string string width
1: I don't know either I think the frequency is also definitely related to the string but yeah I've 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 tried ebow on a piano before and it is it's fun does it work yeah it does I can't it was a while ago to be honest and I didn't really use it for anything serious Mm.
0: it's (laughs) It's an experiment just, just
1: playing yeah
0: so, how are you doing with this whole like COVID thing? I mean, I was, obviously, I've been reading lots of stuff. There's, I follow lots of people, in, you know, professional, independent musicians, and I, I do feel that it must just be the, surely the hardest of times. Like, it, like this is presumably something that the industry is not in any way prepared for, and it's like no one really considered that. What am I trying to You get this thing where basically people who like run pubs say, "Oh, you know, pubs are sort of recession proof and you know uh, any proof, but they're not." But like this, it just illustrates how the entire entertainment industry is not is not um, protected against something like this. No. And so, no. how for you, uh, you know, how has this affected you, and what do you think the repercussions are going to be?
1: Well, the the most immediate way that it affected affected me when this all first broke out was that I lost all my touring work for the next five months. Um, so yeah, obviously that's not so good. Um, but also in terms of, uh, I I can't really do my thing at home in, in like I've got all, most of my gear lives in a studio somewhere on the other side of Bristol.
0: Um,
1: and so I managed to get a few small bits back home um, but the other – so obviously I'm limited in that sense, which, you know, could be a good thing, and that's a, that's fine. But I also can't really make much noise here
0: mm.
1: because, you know, I'm a considerate neighbour. <laughs> yes. Um, so in terms of vocal stuff that I feel, you know, I haven't really sang properly in such a long time.
0: Do you think you can get a good recording in at home as well, or do you think it's a, you've got to be in a studio for that?
1: No, I can – I, I can. I've got a couple of decent mics here that I can use. The rooms aren't the best sounding, mm. but I've sort of been writing a few things that are softer vocals, so I can kind of get away with just being really close to the mic, not singing too loudly and also not getting too much of the room. And I probably could get some decent stuff out of that, but I'm, it's not really inspiring me at the moment, oh,
0: that situation. Do you think for you is the studio not just, it's not just about the noise and the space, is it about a certain headspace as well that you, can you work effectively at home, do you know what I mean, with all the distractions? Mm.
1: Well, the thing is, I, I actually love working at home. It's all, all the kind of the in-the-box stuff I love to do at home. So I'm quite lucky in that I've got a load of stuff that I worked on before this whole you know, pandemic Mm. that I can work on in the box because there's a load of stuff already recorded. So that's all fine. I've got things I can get on with and, you know, writing quietly. But there are some things that I just really miss. I just miss making noise, you know. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
1: But in terms of the mindset, it's just got to be somewhere that I feel there's some familiarity. And so that could either be home or it could be the studio.
0: Are you playing acoustic instruments in the studio as well? What do you play, as well as just do you play exclusively keyboard or?
1: Yeah, well, um, yeah. I mean, I've got a few sort of little toys, percussive toys, but yeah, I think um, basically piano keys and voice are my main instruments.
0: Obviously, you were practicing to play uh, golf golf tours. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we were kind of halfway through the rehearsal the planned rehearsal process in that we did a kind of week or so sort of locally um, in Wiltshire. And then we were going to do, after that, we were going to do however long in London with a string quartet. And so we, we kind of got through that first week together had an amazing time it was so much fun um and but all all the while knowing that this was all kind of creeping up on us and we're kind of thinking okay what what's gonna happen and so we were all together when we when it was decided you know what was gonna have to happen so yeah it was an odd time because we all felt very together (laughs) you know that we'd we'd kind of hyped up the whole thing together and been working together getting really excited about it and then uh, okay, I have to wait a year
0: <laughs> it's fine. so what is what is the rehearsal process like you know for for that band how do you how do you do that
1: I mean I can only say speak for a couple of tours worth, but I think i mean it's probably similar to most bands in that there's well particularly when there's a lot of electronic stuff going on there's a kind of pre-production process um certainly with what what I'm doing and the other keyboard player, Angie, we kind of worked together quite a lot to, because with this tour, um, which was going to be the Felt Mountain anniversary. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they haven't played a lot of those songs since since it came out 20 years ago. So in the, the the way that the live setup exists now, those songs just don't exist. They haven't been programmed. So we we basically kind of figured it all out together from scratch.
0: Presumably, like tunes like that. If it's twenty years ago, those are probably on like S one thousands or something. Or are they?
1: I can't remember what sampler they used, but yeah, Mm. it was all on a sampler and had to be kind of transferred to virtual world, reorchestrated basically. Yeah, Um, and so we're we're using instruments that are that we built, kind of using EXS twenty four, and it's it's running off main stage. Um, kind of using the original, either either the ori- original samples from the record or kind of sampling the actual synths that we used.
0: Do you have a sort of rule to like keep it faithful, or is there a sort of sense that you're allowed to kind of modernise something? Not that it...
1: Um, it, it. I think it all. It's different with every band I work with. Really, sometimes I do have the opportunity to kind of recreate it in a, on something else or do something similar with that with that project it's quite true to the record so i haven't really i would i'd love to get some analog synths involved and and do it all live that would be great but it's sort of quite tricky with i found this for for maybe like the last three big tours that i've done that you have to really think about how to make it work on tour and be reliable and rep replicable. And um, so I feel like my kind of analog synth world is that's what I do in my writing and probably will do live with my own project, but it's a completely different world to a kind of big on the road tour. Cause you, you know, there, there are so many different sounds within one set that I need to use. And it's just not practical to use, to bring loads of synths that could end up dying on you. And so there are some compromises in that sense that, you know, a lot of it is coming off, off a laptop, but actually I really try and make it as live as possible in, in the way that I'm kind of delivering it in terms of like the interface, you know, it needs to be something with faders and pads. And um, when I was touring with, with Birdie a few years back, I actually used a, a ribbon controller midi controller that was was controlling main stage but obviously that's a really kind of visual tactile thing Mm. so yeah there's a bit of a kind of fit some figuring out involved in setting up these rigs not just in the the audio part of it and getting the sounds right but also figuring out how how I'm going to perform them in a way that is a performance
0: yeah yeah what does that I mean that I've been thinking a lot I think a lot about that in terms of what you know I think to myself if I'm sort of watching a show you know it what do I actually what do I consider live you know and what is Mm. it's that question of what is important um you know what is important when you actually go and see a band is it is it sort of communing with the the people who actually made the record and just being in the same room as them and enjoying music where it's not as important that it is been the technical difficulty you know if you make an equivalent of of like abstract painting you know it's not about the technical skill required to put the mark it's about the idea of what mark went down and it's I think the same thing can probably be said of live music yeah I suppose but for the question for you especially as a person who's you know you have a sort of classical background in that sense that you you have the physical chops to to play these things live you know what for you what is live you know and what when you say that you're kind of you know you're trying to strike a balance like what what is the perfect balance what do you want to see if you if you go see a show
1: yeah i think you're right cuz i i that that element of risk i think is maybe underrated because that you know knowing that something could fall apart at any moment but that's part of the magic i really like that and i sort of i miss that a little bit um but yeah i think just somebody that i've that I spoke to recently about this very same question, you know, what is live, especially in in relation to electronic music and using laptops in particular, is um, he used the phrase moving air. And so it's not just, like, I I really don't want to see people just constantly looking at a laptop screen and, you know, making their adjustments based on that because to me that I – you know, you can use a laptop live and and it not necessarily be either not be part of the performance or not even be um, visible or the audience might not know it's there kind of thing. Um, so I think it's I think it's about what the, the performer is doing. It's not necessarily the tools that they're using. Well, <laughs> it can be if it's you know, if it's like a for me, the visual side of it is really important. I think.
0: Do you mean seeing what they're doing or that there is a sort of like lights and projection and, and kind of a...
1: I think the physical side of moving something or touching, you know, the touch and manipulating something by moving, physically moving it. Have you have you heard of a guy called uh, Pierre Bastien? No. He, so he's this French composer who I saw... I didn't know who he was when I went to see him but he came to play at a Bath Music Festival and he's he builds um mechanical musical instruments out of Meccano, mostly and other bits and bobs and like motors and fans and um elastic bands and pipes and um and so they basically in a sense, they play themselves. You know, you've got loads of kind of cogs moving around that might either pluck a string as it, every time it goes around, or it might move a set of pipes over a a fan or something that's blowing air, and so it's blowing, it's playing notes. Um, and so, but the thing is, it's not just like this machine playing music. It's the way that he manipulates it. So he's constantly like adding a different elastic band on to, to change the note or like changing the pipes to change the notes or changing the cogs to, you know, and some cogs might have a specific rhythm built into them. And he's doing that as he goes along. And to me like that, that was one of the most, I don't, I don't know why, but it was one of the most moving musical performances I've ever seen. And it doesn't like the way that I'm describing it might not do it justice, but. I think it might be because it's like this mani- this manipulation of this kind of physical manipulation. And also mm. maybe because the, the machines are kind of, they're <clears> not <throat> computers. And, and he's made a point of saying um, that he did all this before computers in live music were even, that the idea of that was even invented. Um, and so there's a kind of slightly clunkiness to the way that they move. It's not completely perfect because it's kind of man-made thing. Um, and I quite like that. The, the idea that something has um, a kind of human quality to it, even if mm-hmm. it's not like a synth that isn't perfect, you know, like analog synths that are... Like my Juno one hundred and six, that's had a dying voice chip for the last oh. like year or so, and I can't get to her, <laughs> to oh, get her no, fix. Um, but actually, she's sort of making these wonderful sounds as a result of of that because it's not completely perfect, you know.
0: Does it? Does she uh, still? Is the voice still sounding in a way, or is it just quiet?
1: It does. So it's. Um, It's either sounding or it's squealing like <laughs> like a, like it's the resonance on the filter suddenly going insane.
0: That's amazing.
1: Um,
0: That's yeah. much, much more fun than just silence for a note. yes you know, a little yeah, bit exactly
1: it. and it's <laughs> it's made its way onto that very sound onto a record, and it's probably soon to make its way onto another one, I think nice um, unintentionally, but,
0: but I've just... I just. Yeah sorry. so i was just going to say I've just look, been looking at Pierre Bastien. and those machines it's uh, kind of what you were you know what you were saying so it makes me think of that whole it's that it, there's something about seeing the sort of um the process in action um you know I know that you've sort of you're a fan of like Steve Reich and sort of you know 60s minimalism and, and yeah. kind of those composers and it's certainly Reich you know he's a person where the music is structured in a way so that the, the audience can understand how it was composed. So he sort of just in the same way as, you know, if I was to start a tune, I'll start with one, you know, one particular sound and add something and I could play back the tune in the same sort of order. Then, then Reich has kind of done that too. And so you get this Mm -hmm. sense of seeing how it was constructed. I think in the case of like those machines, it's like, it's like that times 11 and you've got that sort of, also that concept of uh, it's, there's something sort of beautiful about something that is a kind of unnecessary and there's obviously clearly a lot of work and a labor of love to create and has like yeah. one specific purpose you know and a very and a, a purpose that is just purely art is yeah it's very sort of just a good reminder of what why humans can be nice and good sometimes
1: yeah yeah it's true Although, having said that, I just remembered an interview that I... Well, maybe I shouldn't ruin the moment by saying this. Um, That's fine. No, I will. I will do it. Go on, do it.
0: Um,
1: In an interview that he was talking about... um, Pierre Bastien, this is... He was talking about how he... One of the reasons he initially started making these machines was that uh, he wouldn't have, you know, working with... Collaborating with other people was like... Had problems in that... He didn't know what to do when when there were kind of contradictions and conflict going on. Hmm. And a machine will just do what he builds them to do.
0: Oh, that's quite sad.
1: I know. Poor,
0: poor, poor Pierre. He's <laughs> just not had a good studio experience.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Oh. But, um, yeah, sad. the idea that something kind of unfurls in front of you, like you mentioned Steve Reich, mm. Um and you know, you kind of know how it's been put together. That sort of made me think of that. Well, I guess maybe the first piece I ever heard by him that kind of changed my life a little bit <laughs> um, was Piano Phase. I don't know if you've heard that. And you, you sort of know, you know what's happening when you're listening to it. Yeah. And yet, it, th- there are still surprises coming along yeah. constantly throughout the whole thing. Um, which is great,
0: absolutely. Like clapping music as well, where you know it's it's such a simple conceit, but and also it's very very clear that there's just two people clapping. But the I definitely would say and 100% agree. Like certainly in, in <laughs> clapping music as well, it's just phase effects that are every time it rolls here. However, minute is eight bars, and then it it moves on to the next phase. It's mm. suddenly, it's always a surprise, even though you, you understand what is happening. It's like, it's an incredible process. Yeah. Do you think it's a shame that Steve never really, I mean, he's very down on electronic music as a concept because Wright always says that acoustic instruments are just more interesting sounding, and I'm sure he's right. And, I, and it, there is, when people have tried to do like, digital version or digital like analog versions with synths of like music for 18 musicians they never part of the like glory of music for 18 musicians is the fact that it is humans playing it and like you know like Pierre Bastien's machines it's it's you're seeing something kind of that you're seeing it really happen in front of you it's not a recording um and it's like bastion requires machines it's the the fact that music for 18 musicians is like the inverse it's like machine music but it's actually played by humans in a way that you think human probably it would never occur to you that humans can play like that if they practice i don't know if you've you, yeah. you ever tried to have you played any of his pieces or music
1: um, i tried to what's Steve right yeah not um
0: <laughs> yeah not built anything yet. i
1: so because Basically at the time that I discovered him that sort of opened the world of live looping up to me and I went through a bit of a phase mm. of live looping. So I did try playing piano phase with myself not with nice. either hand. I know that somebody's done that. That's insane oh skill involved in that like uh, do cuz you you know the premise of it the
0: So like I'm,
1: where there's there's um the one or for anyone who's listening yeah Go so on. there's like a f- uh, a piano phrase that's <laughs> like 12 notes long um and repeated and it's played by two people on a piano each in unison and one person throughout the entire thing stays at one at the same tempo and the other person speeds up every now and again in order to really gradually get out of sync and then lock back in um, rhythmically, but obviously then being rhythmically displaced in terms of the, the melodic phrase. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I would, I would, would record the phrase onto a looper and then have a go at being the, mm. the moving tempo against it. And it's, it's quite, um, it's quite therapeutic actually. I
0: can Is recommend it, meditative. it if you get a chance.
1: Yeah. Ah, yeah. Um, I tried to that's play the clapping. only thing though. Oh yeah. Clapping music. Oh, I've had a little go at,
0: have you, how did you do?
1: I can't remember. It was at, I think it was at school actually. Mm. Um, but there's, there's also an app. Have you seen the app for, I the, have clapping seen the, music? App for
0: the train you to, to learn to clap?
1: Yeah, I'd quite like to do it again. Sorry, not the app, but um I'd quite like to just play it again.
0: Might be good I for your neighbours I mean. as well, especially if they're yeah. terrible music.
1: Yeah, that's Hazel, a good can idea. It. just like, yeah. <laughs> like what on
0: earth. What's she doing? And endless as well. Uh yeah, it's yeah. um Yeah, I have tried to play clapping music and it's really, really hard. It's it's like the concept, you know, the rhythm, the core rhythm is so incredibly simple, but it it really it's worth trying. If anyone's listening to this, is like go and go and get the the score for it. It's very simple, and it is literally just two people clapping that rhythm I clapped before, and then at I think it is every eight bars. The other one of the clappers stays exactly the same, and the other shifts like one sort of beat ahead. I think it is or behind. Yeah, and what neither. happens is. You get a complete yeah, all these different rhythms, but what's interesting is it's not physically I don't think anyone on earth could just perform clapping music the first time. And and every transition into each of the stages requires that even though you know the actual like the core rhythm, you're actually learning a new rhythm if that makes sense you almost have to play you play the hybrid rhythm that it creates
1: i think that's the only way to do it without getting completely confused is to learn each rhythm as as a separate rhythm
0: yes yeah i think yeah i'm
1: remembering back to it now looking at the the score
0: (laughs) that is what is amazing about it as well because you think it would be like oh how can it be but it's it's weird and it's i don't know what it says it probably a lot about the way that brains work and the ears work and that that you know we're not logical beings in any <laughs> in any way whatsoever so no yeah i think that's
1: what i like because you said it's so s- simple but i think the fact that it is such a simple concept but when you listen to it as a piece of music it doesn't sound like it i think that's what mm. but, but that well that's the whole premise of minimalism isn't it so i think i, need that's to, I, I like it
0: i never listened to morton feldman who's someone that you recommend um, yeah could you give me a sort of brief, like, what what does his music mean to you?
1: Well, I'm a bit confused by him sometimes. But if I can't concentrate on one era, then I'm less confused because he changed his mind a lot. But um, for me, well, I kind of looked a lot of, at his piano music, he did he wrote a lot of piano music that was very it's basically really sparse, like you'd hear one note or chord and it would ring out, and nothing else would happen until that note decays and a bit of silence and then another note would come in and it's the idea of allowing the sound to play itself to mm. to just be uninterrupted unaffected by human humanity and he even goes to went so far as to say try and not play with any attack which obviously it's not really that possible with a piano and later on I think he kind of experimented with um, electronic music for that reason because you could obviously take attack off but he wanted to keep it completely just no Like the attack, I think he saw the attack as a kind of, that's the sound of human impact kind of Mm -hmm. thing. So he wanted the sounds to sing for themselves. So a lot of his piano pieces are um, ever so slightly dissonant or atonal, however you want to think of it, because like each chord would be something like a... They'd be really far apart as well. He had enormous hands, by the way. Did he? So, like, it, he so if you don't have big hands, it's quite hard to play his piano. His <laughs> piano pieces, because the there would be a two-note chord, like really far apart, like a t- more than a tenth apart. So you'd have to really stretch your hands. I have got quite big hands, I guess. But um, yeah, so it's this kind of celebration of the the decaying of the note and this very static kind of feel, I that's guess. Nice. is That's the part of him that, uh, the part of his music that sort of spoke to me.
0: Mm, that sounds great. It's yeah. like the, um, ah, what's it? Well, it's, it's that kind of sympathetic resonance thing. It's the listening. Actually, that reminds me of the, um, have you seen the band Sun, Suno play? Ever? I've not seen them, no do you know if you're familiar with well and for the benefit of anyone listening basically they this is a, a sort of doom doom core i probably don't know what their music is technically but sort of like ambient doom music but played on guitars and they have a couple of synths but they their music is like by the sounds of it as reductive as Feldman's music in the sense that you know when i saw them play they were sort of sp- there were like three or four of them dressed as sort of like monks. The stage had so much dry ice on it that the entire contents of the stage would be invisible. You know, it was just a, you were staring into a cloud, basically. And that they would sort of stand there with the guitars and then slam the guitars with their, you know, strum them, but in an open, in an open tuning, you know, there's no left hand, you know, on the neck. And the guitars all ring at the same time in a sort of crazy discordant way. And then as you keep listening to this massive singular sound, they decay. And then it sounds like they all sort of synchronize in the way that when you see, have you seen those like clips of um, cat's cradles or what are they called? You know, those like sort of um, executive desk toys. Yeah there are like you can do these things where you you put them on a jig or something and play and and click them and eventually they'll all synchronize. They all go in sync, yeah. Yeah, and it's felt like that was happening with guitar strings with that band and it's uh oh. it's um yeah, I don't think I I wish that I was as reductive in my own music and like actually I suppose like you know personally I'm just like maybe I can be And I mean, you must be the same for yourself that if you're messing with synths, there is a part of messing with a synth where you're basically just holding, kind of holding a chord down, you know, hold is on, or you're just, you've just, your hand is just stuck on those notes. And it's just listening to the sound of all of those notes interact. Yeah. That must be common to to everyone, surely.
1: Yeah, I think, and that's kind of a good, um, good way of practicing, like, Patience <laughs> mindfulness, if you like. Cause like you might want to just keep playing and doing playing notes, but sometimes you need to let something do its own thing. Like I don't I don't own a modular system, but I've had a lot of I've had a good old go with one quite a bit, and it's and I've kind of learned that with modular synths you Well, I'm maybe with the patches that I've set up is that you kind of, I just need to calm down, chill out and sit back a bit (laughs) and just let it, because if I keep changing it, I'm going to keep changing what's modulating and I'm not going to allow the modulating to unfurl it by itself kind of thing. Um, So yeah, I think maybe that's a a similar thing. Mm. And you know how, what I mentioned earlier about kind of listening to sticking my head inside a piano and, yeah listening to the note part of what I love about that is that you can physically hear the sound bouncing around and it's like it's pulsing somehow
0: Mm.
1: when you're that close to it and it's like it's obviously the sound wave physically moving and there's something about that physicality that that I'm actually really missing at the moment
0: it's also just it is a wonderful it reminds you that a piano is a 3d instrument you know and it's pianos are meant to be played in rooms and that there is a you know there is a physical interaction with the air in the room and and that's the nature of sound that it bounces around and it focuses itself into corners of rooms and um it's um that's something that is lost in headphones and synthesizers you know is that sort of the the just insane richness of the acoustic world—that's um, something that stu- you know. And that's when mm. people talk about you know studios are dead, and it's like I, you know, I don't know. It's there's a lot to be said for it. Certainly, I mean, it's. I just personally, you know, I will always enjoy going into a big echoey space. You know, like going into um, like a massive industrial unit that's empty, and so there's a kind of 10 second reverb tail in it. Wasn't you know? Yeah. Those are always it's sort of electrifying experiences because you're you know you can't help but shout or whoop and make a sound and just listen to the you know listen to the kind of infinity. I suppose that's that's the nature of playing with reverbs and
1: Yeah. I mean I don't I sort of yeah, I do agree with you, but at the same time I don't want to downplay synths because they sort of have their own magic, even though it's a different kind of space it's still they still occupy a space in a way
0: mm. an acoustic world do you mean you know in sort of
1: acoustically yeah um who what who was I reading about the other day that was talking about this um oh it's a combination I was actually looking up the um Oscar Sala who uh played the the Troutonium
0: yes and well, because um, of the uh, subharmonicon
1: exactly yeah I'm quite intrigued by that. But I have I don't know um Yeah, I saw your video on it. Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that, so
0: <laughs> No, no, it's fine. The uh, it is really interesting that I mean the subharmonicon certainly and also the concepts. I think it's I think it's cool that Moog uh, like, you know, that is it is quite a cracker's, you know, the design of the certainly the design of the subharmonicon. Um and it's interesting to look to the past where you'll find these versions of synthesizers that were before we had a template you know before we had a mini moog which you know became the sort of like everyone's accepted definition of what a synthesizer was there is of course like a whole you know there are a, you know an infinite amount of approaches that haven't really been explored it's i think there's perhaps a danger that we're um, we're going to get trapped by the past if we're just going in sort of you know if all we ever crave is a version of something we've already had um, yeah. so I, th- I do commend them for for finding the weirder things do you know what i mean of like you know like the uh, like the trautonium was it traut it was the trautonium wasn't it and it was sort of
1: divided. Yeah it was cuz that i was watching um this little documentary there there was a bit of footage of Oscar Sala playing it and it just you wouldn't look you wouldn't have looked at it and thought oh yeah electronic instrument you know there's this mi- misconception of electronic music or synths being kind of sterile and you know not expressive maybe mm. and that was that was like that completely defied that misconception if you it's worth looking oh, i wonder if i can Maybe I'll send you the link if I can find it again but oh, have a look yeah. And yeah there's it's just the way that he plays it and it's it's so exp- he's so expressive with it it there's no there's no comparison between in fact it was um there's an article on in sound on sound out at the moment that's an interview with van vangelis van Yeah, yeah I know you say. um Van
0: vangelis isn't it
1: well, I I've always been, say Vangelis, but now I'm
0: You've got it right. You've been, it. Okay. You're the Moog of the Vangelis world.
1: Oh, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah, and he was he was sort of basically saying that he doesn't see any difference between acoustic instruments and electronic instruments. Um, it's all... It, the. the the problem is if you have an instrument that you think isn't going to be very expressive, the problem lies within the person that made, not the person, but the design of the the instrument. So obviously the Mm CSAT being, having sort of velocity sensitive and having the, the ribbon controller thing, there's a lot of expression in that. Yeah, And I think that's the side of synthesis that that I'm quite excited by is when it's maybe not human, it's got character, but it's not human. It's not trying to be something else. It's, um, you know, it's it's got its own life to it.
0: Mm. Do you think it's more important that it comes from a human's fingers or does it, is it equally valid that it's modulation that you've programmed or have engineered, you
1: know, mm. that it's
0: playing itself or is it more important that you play it?
1: Interesting. Well, I mean, cuz I know that you can obviously program self-evolving patches. You can obviously hook up Max MSP to a modular and and have it be spontaneous in its own way. Um but I I like the physicality of of it personally as a participant. <laughs> um which is, which is why some of my favourite synths are the simplest in terms of the the interface and that, like, they're just, what you see is what you get. And I'm just really put off by menu diving a lot of the time.
0: Mm. But you, need, you prefer simpler synths. Is that be, for expression? But is that because you're sort of, it's more obvious to you, like... You know, oh, yeah,
1: that's another thing, isn't it?
0: There's no confusion in terms of the design so that you can be like, right, I, I know what I need to do to like, make this change happen. Or, um... I,
1: I don't think it's so much the complexity of it. More simplicity in terms of um, everything being physically under your fingertips so that you can be spontaneous in real time and not have to pause and... Hmm. Hit, a, hit shift and go to a different menu and <laughs> do you know what i mean because you um,
0: could make the, uh, if you were a designer you could make the argument that if you give you know if i gave hazel more controls she'd have more things to be spontaneous with it's an interesting design choice where you say well actually ah it's better that you make it simpler because i will find it easier to to navigate your instrument and be spontaneous do you know what i mean it's like Having yeah. at what point at what point having options is actually counterintuitive
1: yeah I think I think it is I th- personally i I think the less options you have, the more creative you can be, because you can you know it's like where well, you can learn those few options inside out, and then they become like in the way that um a musician will play an instrument with their fingers after a while it's uh, muscle memory. Mm. Um, you know, you you end up playing it as an instrument in the same way. It's muscle memory. So, like with a synth, you know, with with a a lot of the Roland synths that I like, I think I like faders. I think that might be it. Mm. But um, I with they it. they become under my fingers. You know, like a kind of like their keys as well. The yeah. like the buttons and the knobs are part. Well, they are. They're part of the instrument. So um, that I think the more of that you have going on, the less you can kind of refine what you're doing with them, maybe.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it, it's that thing of having too granular control. It's If you think about the difference between like a DX7 and a Juno 106, it's, you know, you have two fundamentally different approaches where one has got... You know, really only I've got a Juno sixty in the room with me. Uh it's got 12, so 15, 20 controls, maybe? If that.
1: Yeah.
0: Whereas a DX seven has hundred and twenty-eight. Mm. You know, it's sort <laughs> of like um yeah, and they're <laughs> hidden behind a you know, a little two line L C D screen and it's I must say, I must say, like I'm completely with you in the sense that like um, you know, for me personally the Juno sixty is the best my favorite synth for that for exactly the reason you say it's like i feel the same way and that it's you know it's immediate i know exactly what i would need to do to make a certain thing happen but conversely i also really enjoy the dx7 because it's unex it's like i think i described i did an interview and described it as like alchemy because it it you have no idea what's going to come out
1: exactly therefore
0: it's often surprising and um Gives you ideas.
1: Yeah, I think with with something like that, with FM synthesis, like for me, I don't understand it. I don't yeah, really understand it. it, and I, I kind of I don't no want one to. Yeah, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't want to understand it because I, you know, you play around with it and you do something you don't understand. And I I understand the appeal in in not understanding what you're doing. I've said that word too much. Um, <laughs> understand there's an appeal in that, you know, you don't get what you're doing, but you can still be creative and spontaneous with it. So that, that, yeah, I think that's, that's okay. It's more th- things like since that, so I've got um, a Prophet 6 now, which for that very reason, I absolutely love because I feel like the, the minute I played one, I went over to a friend's house and had a go on one just to see if I wanted to pursue it and i knew immediately yes i do because it every it all makes sense to my hands it was just an immediate response Hmm. um but i you know having used things like the 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 mofo the daysmith mofo and things where there's a lot of menu diving going on which obviously you know it's quite nicely portable so there's there's compromise there But I just, I find it a bit of a buzzkill when there's a bit too much of that going on. And it's like I'm kind of still trying to learn an instrument. I'm trying to play it as though I've mastered it, kind of thing. Mm. Maybe because I'm quite impatient. I don't know. I just, I just like it to be intuitive and a physical experience, I think.
0: Mm. I think, yeah. Just the important thing of knowing what, you know, you know what you want. And it's like, there are things that I've certainly bought or, or tried that I did because other people use them. And I thought that I would, you know, I think that's a very common thing, isn't it? When you, you consider any new toy or bit of equipment, cause you're like, ah, look, they're having a great time. Like, you know, all these people are always like saying this thing's amazing. It's uh, very, so like I was thinking about the uh, first synth I bought was a Novation Nova, which has got so much power. Um, but for me at the time when I had no idea how synth worked, it was, absolutely overkill and I I didn't enjoy using it and it was only when I traded it I got one of those Korg MS2000s and it's such a simple device as you say like with the like with the Prophet 6 where most of the the controls are really all on the front panel although on Mm -hmm. MS2000 has got wavetables but that's what I needed and it's what I I would gravitate to it's just what made sense and for you is presumably you're playing you know so much of what you do is is band based, you know, and is live and requires a sort of a direct connection with an instrument, you know. It's but you are obviously, you know, you are producing music at home too.
1: Yeah, because like, it, well, I was going to say that the first thing I was going to say was um, that I I learned synthesis on an SH one hundred and one, and that's that's it. You know, what you see is what you get. It's one oscillator. Everything's right there. It's really clear. Yeah. And it was yeah, that was the best thing I could have been using at the time. So yeah, but you were going to talk about
0: writing. Producing. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a few sort of questions. Particularly also, also, how what was your route into making music? Obviously, you were saying when you were younger, you played, you, know, you were playing piano from a really early age. But at what point do you actually start making your own tunes and kind of taking that more seriously? When does it stop becoming a, you know, like a a pastime, or a, something that you you've always done, something that you actively choose to do. Well,
1: I think I started writing when I was about ten or something. <laughs> In that, I remember, <laughs> I remember writing, like making up a little pop song that was just a cappella, and I remember recording it to my little tape machine. Upstairs in my bedroom one day, like secretly, I didn't want anyone to know I was doing amazing. it. <laughs> I don't know if I ever played it to anyone, but um,
0: can you remember the, any of the the lyrics and/or content?
1: Yeah, all of it. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, you're not hearing it. No, um, it's dying <laughs> with you. But um, yeah, <laughs> but then as as I grew up, I I ended up quite often just sitting at the piano and making up stuff improvising on the piano, not in a kind of jazz sense, um, but just writing on the spot. Like and I did I remember doing that a lot with my uncle. He would come round, he played the piano as well, or still does. Um he would come round and we'd we'd kind of it became like traditional something. We'd just have a little oh, should we have a yeah sit at the have piano together jam. and just improvise a duet. Oh, that's
0: nice. Um
1: but yeah, I mean, in terms of like songwriting more seriously, I guess it happened gradually throughout my teens and then to early 20s was becoming more more of a, ah, okay, this is going to be a thing. Because actually when I was a teenager, I thought I wanted to be an actress. I didn't think that music was going to be my career. I just thought it was my life, but not my career, if that makes sense. Like it was always part of my life. There was no question of that. Um, I was very involved in a lot of theater stuff, Um but then, yeah, gradually it started to become clear that it was all about music.
0: Hmm. What do you think makes um, that, ch- what made that change?
1: Um, uh, it was. Easy, <laughs> in that it not not that it wasn't the easy choice, but that it was, it made sense. It was like if I didn't play or write for a, a long period of time, I felt almost unwell. Hmm. Like, like I need I need it for my health, <laughs> kind of hmm. thing. In a way, um, that's interesting. Yeah.
0: Why do you think that is? What what how do you describe it?
1: I think it's the way I express myself. Like I'm not good with words. I've never been good with words, and I found growing up as a child, I found reading very difficult in terms of not the not the physical act of reading, but um like having a desire to sit down and do it. Mm. And so I, I became not very expressive with words, but with, with sound in other ways Mm. So Maybe, um, yeah, I just love to, and I'm, I'm always singing around the house. I need, I need it. (laughs) It's like the same as breathing somehow.
0: So what did your early music sound like? I mean, it's listening to your music. It's sort of certainly like the, you know, what I have heard, what, you know, what I know is kind of, um, it's. it feels like it's rooted in sort of 60s psychedelia and sort of...
1: Oh, I know what you've been listening to. <laughs> yeah, that's what
0: I've been listening to. White Rabbit. But that's not obviously, um, yes, exactly.
1: Yeah, I, I think that def- definitely was very much so um, at the time. I think everything I've put out so far is a kind of, um, is a representation of a, f- not a phase but a particular, yeah, maybe a phase, a phase I was going through at the time. And at that time I was listening to a lot of Jefferson Airplane, um, Tom Waits, Nick Cave, and other kind of like Silver Apples and mm. United States of America and a bit, yeah, quite psychedelic stuff. But I, since then, not, nothing I've written has, has been like that. Because um, after that, it sort of became a kind of synthy post-punk thing which was it? what came out of that record was um, it kind of became a band because I had a live band for that record. And then we decided that we were sort of collaborating as a band rather than a, a solo artist. So we became a band and kind of morphed through the, the psychedelic kind of phase into kind of post-punk with John Carpenter, Carpenter thrown in. Oh rad! Um, and I think there's still ele- some teeny elements of that in what I'm writing at the moment. When I was kind of developing as a as a writer early on, I was listening to a lot of Tori Amos, so I sounded like her at the time. Mm. Mm.
0: Um, it's good to be constantly evolving, and you know, it's you've got you kind of have to really surely. And it, as you continue to to be inspired and listening and discover things, it's just yeah. I tend to find I binge a certain type of music quite, you know, really solely and entirely, and then make the music I make is is just sort of soaked in that for a for a time.
1: Yeah, I think it's good to do that, but like, because I, yeah, I've definitely done that before. And when I was first introduced to American minimalism, all everything I wrote had really kind of. Reishi piano stuff going on and mm. um, like the, the record that I put out before, before that one um, well, it was an EP actually, but um, that, that had some elements of that in it. I think that's, that's kind of how you find a voice, isn't it? You just, you try different things. You you like you study a, an idea or a, a style. I didn't mean to make it sound all academic actually but um, <laughs> no no I'm
0: totally on board you kind of
1: do in in the sense that you immerse yourself in it and then it comes out of you and then the the more different things you do i guess the the more unique a sound you will end up with in theory hopefully
0: yeah, I remember I've heard a sort of Aphex Twin quote where he says he wished he'd never heard any music at all ever, so that the music he made would be truly, absolutely his own. You know, sort of. But how you would you other-
1: know that though?
0: What exactly? Without having know.
1: anything to reference.
0: If it, I mean, it's the thing. It's you know, we're <laughs> music is funny and it's like, like it is a language. It's bizarre. Yeah, you know? I really, it really like scrambles my brains. The concept that there is. Uh, that musical phrases can have have a, a sentence structure and a resolution. I find that the fact that that is a fact, and that you know, if you play things in a certain way, they sound like a sentence has spoken and then has naturally come to its conclusion and finished. Mm. Like, that that is just bizarre to me. How a collection of frequencies has a grammar? I do not get how that works, and I I assume it's universal as well. I don't know. Mm. If, yeah, as in, like, no matter where you are from in the world, no matter your background, you understand the grammar of music.
1: It is know. a universal language, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And, it, and that, that sort of touches upon the whole question of, is there anything now that is going to be unique from now on, musically speaking? Is anything new going to happen?
0: Yeah, <laughs> truly new.
1: Truly new. Yeah. Or even pioneering in a sense, you know, because like, is there going to be a new genre? There probably will be, but I can't for the life of me think what it could be. I can't imagine what it could be.
0: You kind of think like at this point, we're so culturally saturated, you know, that we live in, you know, we've had 20 years of the internet basically. And, and at this point, you know, don't we know everything about everything about everyone about everything? And it's sort of, has, has it not all been said? It's. Yeah,
1: but I maybe we'll be proven wrong actually and we're just we just can't see it yet
0: i guess like the standard line is that there's somewhere there's a kid with an iphone that's making the music of the future you know yeah. uh, certainly there is there's some music that i've heard like uh, like oneo tricks point never sort of doing these slightly strange kind of like 90s pastiches using sounds from things like the jv1080 and kind of like rumplers of the, the 90s and, and sort of re putting those into Ableton Live and making them, turning them around in a washing machine. Sort of that, that to me feels somewhat new, but then it's really a form of, I guess it is just a reworking of the sort of concepts of avant garde music, but I don't know the music that well, so I can't talk.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess it's all about context, really, isn't it? It's the context that makes it new, whatever it is. Like people are re- reusing the same the same ideas but by putting them against things that they haven't been put against before making it new
0: actually it reminds me of that the craft work thing but the um you know thinking of like all electronic music well not all electronic music I should say but like certain genres of electronic music really truly lead back to craft work you know and you think about but what's amazing about those genres is they weren't they were pioneered by craftwork but they weren't really invented by craftwork they were invented by you know african american people in detroit and chicago and new york hmm. listening to craftwork and and reinterpreting it and there's an amazing 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 photograph of a craftwork gig where there's basically, you know, Ralph Hutter, and he's like leaning forward with his calculator, and it's in 1981 in New York. He's sort of like leaning, and there's the an American audience, and there's there's like white people and black people together in the audience, and there's these sort of super stiff white Germans on stage, hmm. and he's handing the the calculator, and there's an African American woman who's playing the calculator and you sort of just have this it's this perfect image because it illustrates how um, you know craft worker just sort of go here's our idea here's the music and i pass it to you, you. have it um, yeah yeah you have it it's not their music anymore it becomes every you know it becomes another person's music and they they truly genuinely create new styles of music you know electro and techno and uh, you know these things are born from that not from craft work alone but from what what other people did with Craftwork's music, and that's all in that's the there's, there's that, um, Jeremy Deller documentary is the, that does a really good job of it. It talks about that image and that I got a bit teary in the, the bit where he talks about that because he's. Oh, I
1: haven't seen
0: you know, it. Yeah, it's good, um, and it's it's about that basically. Well, that's yeah. part of it, um, you know. And Jeremy Deller says, you know, whenever I'm feeling down about the world and about humanity, I, I go and look at that picture of that craftwork gig and I sort of think that the world and the way, you know, that we are, you know, that we're okay. Everything <laughs> is restored. Yeah. Everything is pretty that's all right. Nice. Yeah. Tell me about the Will Gregory Moog ensemble, um, just because I, I think that's just a really interesting and amazing project. And I'd love to understand what it's like. Can you explain what it is to to folks who don't know? And what is it? How does it work? How do you actually practice and play it?
1: <laughs> okay, so it's um it's basically a, a a chamber ensemble of mono analog synths. They're not all Moog, but it's it's the Moog ensembles. But um anyway. <laughs> Yeah. So basically, we play like a combination of like either traditional orchestral music or like orchestral soundtracks or pieces that people in the group have composed themselves um, using synths. So it's as though we're an orchestra. It's kind of orchestrated in that way, but we're playing synths. It's so much fun. It's um it's amazing because actually if you ever hear it from an outsider's point of view, it, you wouldn't listen to it and think, oh, that's a bunch of synths. <laughs>
0: um,
1: it just sounds like one big sound playing a piece of music that's really expressive, re- really dynamic. And that's one of the things that we work on in rehearsals quite a lot actually is the dynamics, the contrast in dynamics and which we all do with the filter, with a low-pass filter. Opening is the filter the is how filter? we get louder. Yeah. Ah. So that's what gives it a lot of kind of dynamic power, really. It's not just turning up the volume. It's,
0: yeah, it's, it's sort of the low-pass gate concept that you're getting. You're getting a real timbre change, but you're using a... Yeah, that's interesting. Exactly, yeah. It's, and it's
1: So the rehearsal process is often... Um, well, it's quite hard to get basically because there's a lot of people involved. There's like 10 or 11 people <laughs> all playing analog synths, which can be interesting.
0: Tuning wise, I imagine. Yeah.
1: yeah and so we, we do in a, p- people think it's hilarious because in, in a performance, we'll have to tune almost, almost ev- after every piece, maybe not quite that much. But, um, you know, and it's not we're not doing it as a kind of gimmicky thing, but the audience might think because they all kind of chuckle every time we're like, meh, um, <laughs> But we have to because they go out of tune so easily. And it's nice if they're slightly out. If they were all completely perfectly in, I don't think it would have the same magic. But mm. obviously we have to be a bit on it and keeping them in tune and also change, with changing patches for most of them. Certainly, one the one that I use, uh, I'd been using um, an SH09 with the Moog Ensemble, Mm, Um, yeah, which I love to bits. Uh, And you know, obviously, between every piece, uh, I can't hit a button to change the patch. I have to do it all from scratch every time. Um, So, under the pressure of being in a gig doing it, that can be fun. Yeah. But also maybe cool because you don't necessarily get exactly the same sound every time if you a bit if you're a bit rushed for one of them uh, for one of the trans transitions. Absolutely. But, um,
0: do you have patch notes? How do you how do you remember which like set you know get the set? Do you write? Do you draw them on the synth or? Presumably, there's too many to like.
1: No, I don't draw them on. The, do I? Oh, I might. The only thing I'd put on the synth is I mark the octave of the oscillator because from. From the angle that I'm physically at, my eye, the the kind of the indicator that shows what octave it's on, doesn't line up. Does yeah, that make yeah, sense? Yeah. So yeah, I, totally. I need I need to see it exactly in line, so I don't have to think about it. So I just t- put a little bit of tape on to to line it up. But um, yeah, the way that I I just write kind of notes in the in the top hand corner of top left hand corner of the score, draw a little picture of the sine wave uh, of the 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 waveform whatever octave it's in really simple notes sometimes i might just take a photo of it but that's kind of less practical like a, t- a photo of the synth
0: you're coming back to that thing i mean the sh09 is yeah it's all faders it's that from the era of pre the pre juno 106 but where it was very straightforward so you'd i guess if you thought oh just change that change that it's just pretty instant and that idea that they're all slightly out of tune like it's really funny when you said that it sounds um like a, a real orchestra like when i was listening to i've been sort of caning clips of it and i, I was really entranced by it and it's and i actually wrote down to me at moments it sounds like an orchestra for real it doesn't yeah. sound like a synth anymore it's, it's so true it's, It really is. And it's, I guess because there's so many sounds layered in, I listened, the one that really blew my mind was that Oceans of Heaven, Eddie Parker Mm. um, tune, which is, uh, which I actively encourage anyone listening to this to like, go and seek out, but it's, to describe it, it's, it's like swells. You know, we're talking about, it's like the inverse of your Morton Feldman and it's all, it's like slow sort of swells into existence like waves Yeah, and it's and it's presumably all of the musicians potentially, or maybe a a handful of them playing at once. And so you've got this really long attack, you know, this very slow swell and it's, and it's just like it, it, these gorgeous, huge, enormous sounding chords. I wonder when they, when you play live, do they, do they spread the stereo of the instruments across? Is that sort of?
1: I think so. Yeah. I think it's a guy called Tim Oliver who usually does, the sound and he he's really good i'm I'm pretty sure he probably does do that yeah Yeah. um but yeah because what you were saying about it actually sounding like a real orchestra at times is it really does but it's not what we're trying to do it's just it happens to do that because like you said there are so many different sounds and i think deliberately so we're not all the same timbre Mm. so that you know there's a kind of rich sound,
0: but it is like you know it's what Wendy Carlos was doing with you know with with one you know monophonic system fifty five I guess is like with enough layers it it no longer sounds like just that really super basic wonk anymore it sounds your your mind can't hold on to all of the sounds at once, so it's forced to kind of listen to them as a whole, yeah but it's it's really I'd love to hear it live I'm sad I'm not I'm not seen it's I've quite seen something
1: because um well I wasn't able to do the last tour because I was on tour with Florence at the time mm. so and when I came back they they had a, a show that I was able to go to
0: oh,
1: um nice. so I got to see it as an audience member and it yeah it really is it's just an, an insane thing to watch it's it's and and to be part of as well actually yeah but yeah I mean Like you were saying about the kind of rich tapestry of not just one primitive sound, but just to kind of go back on something we were talking about earlier, about being able to see the inner workings. Actually, there's also something to be said for not seeing the inner workings and having magic happen just because you've got kind of such a combination of sounds that you can't really put your finger on what you're hearing. Mm. I'm quite into that.
0: That definitely is what what happens in that, that band. Clearly, yeah. Because I can look at uh, you know, and I'm looking at the pictures from above, and I'm like, right, yeah, I know what every one of those synths is blah blah blah. <laughs> but but when I listen to it, it's it's a whole. It's it's really amazing, and I love that you played the. Uh, I don't know, if maybe you're not in this clip, but the uh, the Wendy Carlos Shining, yes, uh, title music, mm. which is it's like really that uh, the really like. Ee- sound as well that's been played that's really well (laughs) done yeah
1: Um, yeah, just remembering all the because we did we did a few Kubrick ones we did The Shining and a bit from 2001 Space Odyssey and Clockwork Orange as well Mm. but yeah some I think yeah maybe some of the kind of more abstract less traditionally classical bits are, are the most kind of haunting
0: and is it quite difficult? But I, I, Personally, I assume it is a technical nightmare. I mean, from the perspective of the, the virtuosity required to actually physically play those things accurately.
1: Well, yeah, in a way, yeah, partly because a lot of the pieces that we play were written for string instruments and they jump around notes in a way that you don't, Necessarily, do on the keyboard. You know, you're mm. your drum, if you're jumping from string to string, it's a different interval than going from note to note on the keyboard. Um, in that sense, translating it onto a different instrument is quite a challenge. But also, especially because I played quite a small, you know, the SHO nine isn't the, the largest in terms of number of keys, so I would actually have to flip octaves quite a lot mid mid piece or even mid to phrase. But yeah, I, I guess because of my classical background, I kind of already had the some of the chops. It was just what was hard was translating that to also to an an instrument that isn't velocity sensitive. Yeah. So you're putting all your expression into something, and forgetting that it's not. If you're doing that with your fingers, it's not going to do anything. Well, some some synths do, obviously, but most of the ones that we use for that aren't velocity sensitive so yeah, all the expression yeah, yeah. is coming from my left hand which is anchored <laughs> to the cutoff knob um and yeah oh no fader actually mm. um i'm less into the kind of widdly pitch bendy synthy vibe unless it's one massive pitch bend yeah like the bit
0: from like the Vangelis Vangelis Blade Runner titles, like exactly S- a, a CSAT ribbon. Have you have you played a CSAT? No,
1: oh. I've never met one in real life. I
0: would love to <laughs> a real one. Oh my goodness gracious! Um, yeah, what you were saying about the the ensemble being. You know, what part of what, what makes it it's sort of incredible in its quality is the fact that obviously not everyone is perfectly in tune is true, I think, is all the more true of a CS80. You know, it's um, I, the brief time that I played with one in the studio, it 1000% did not disappoint. It was okay it was far better than i thought it was going to be and it was uh, and it was probably also because it's slightly microtonal you know to some degree because it is not in tune it creates right. a slightly kind of haunting quality there is a there is a sense of something that is slightly from another world and it's because it's not tuned exactly like something from this world you know it's, yeah um and of course, yeah, the, then it's very expressive. And depending on how you depress a key, yeah, every single key is going to respond in different ways. So you get, yeah, like crazy, crazy evocative. A part of its charm comes from its brokenness, I think.
1: That's it. Yeah. I think you're right. Uh, yeah, I would love to play one one day. Yeah. If I know anyone who's listening <laughs> it has got one. Yeah.
0: yeah. In please, please
1: invite me round when, when says, I'm not allowed. Not
0: immediately, yet. yeah, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. So um, I was going to ask some sort of desert. Obviously, you talked about the the prophet, um, hmm. but sort of, you know, do you have like a desert island instrument?
1: It's so hard because I th- I think it would be the Juno 106 because I that was always my favourite synth to go back to. This is out of the synths that I own anyway. (laughs) Um, And even since getting the the Prophet 6, which I absolutely adore and love to bits, and I'm very, very happy that I have it with me during lockdown. Yeah. um, I still think there's some kind of emotional connection with the Juno. And I don't know if that's something to do with the fact that I have a bit of a history with Roland synths and maybe there's a familiarity there or what. Even though it's like you can't, it's sort of more, it's much more limiting, limited in sonically and what you can do with it. So maybe it would drive me a bit insane after a while. I don't know. But.
0: I think there's something, personally speaking, I'm, yeah, I'm taking a Juno 60 to my desert island. Ah, so that's what I, I have. But, the, <laughs> but it's there's something just irresistible about those, the sound of those Roland's. There's a classiness to the sound as well, particularly. I think that that's that was certainly true of like the you know the ultimate like the Jupiter eight, but that the the Junos have that a sort of shade of that classiness where they've got a really elegant, polished sort of quality.
1: It's true. Having said that, I have I have had a, a go on a Jupiter, and I'm kind of lusting after one.
0: Yeah, I the would... eight? You mean? Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah, that would be nice.
0: <sighs> yeah, that's. I've got a. For me personally, that is my dream since the Jupiter Eight. But I, I have to say, and it's really sad. I've kind of given up on the dream. It's, oh, the dream is just because it can never. It's gone. You know that dream has gone into territories that no mortal can reach now. It's. But you thanks never to know. eBay.
1: Oh
0: yeah. I just think, it's you know, sad. I still hold out, we all hold out hope there's going to be some, like, day that we go to a sort of, you know, bring and buy sale or answer sort of an ad in some future version of a classified for some old, you know, old organ with sort of colorful buttons and then you go and it's, oh, that's my old so-and-so's organ there. Oh. You, know, you can have that if you like. <laughs> guess it's not worth much. Yeah. It only made funny sounds. So like,
1: oh, I couldn't get it to work. It just yeah. whee- goes, <laughs> 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 Oh, what a shame. I'll have it.
0: Yeah, I'll take that off again. Yeah. Yeah. It is a shame. I mean, in a sense, it's good that we are getting things remade again, you know, and things that Roland choose not to remake are being remade again. Um, so... Mm we may well get some methadone uh, relatively speaking but yeah that's the jupiter is just a particularly classy scent
1: yeah like, i that would probably if i had one that would probably be shh don't tell the 106 that was probably that probably be the one yeah i don't know but
0: the, i think the one yeah i do just genuinely well um right, nerd alert that the, I mean, the Juno, certainly the Juno 6, I don't know enough about the 106, but there are component similarities between those and Jupiter H. Like they have, I'm pretty sure they've got the same filter. They don't have the same envelopes and they might have slightly different VCA. And there's obviously like in the 106, then you've got Mm. those integrated chips, but there are definitely some, there are literally some common components across some of the Junos and the Jupiters. So, um, yeah right. but possibly not 106
1: though.
0: Oh. Possibly not 106 but yeah. I think it has that same vibe, you know, it was it was from the same family and it yeah. had like you know it was presumably the similar designers making it. There was only 4 years between them. Um, I think they sound, you know, I think they all sound great. A, you know like you, know, as you were saying like the 101 was your first kind of synth. I mean that is Yeah. I can't I think and think of no better first synth.
1: Wow. Like, yeah yeah (laughs) just yeah
0: i mean that thing especially i mean you were you you were playing it playing it you weren't like i assume you're you're going to be playing it properly you're not like playing with the arpeggiator and the sequencer and sort of have you explored and particularly with the modular stuff have you gotten into that or you do you use it you are like it's an extension of your ability to play
1: uh for sequencing you mean
0: do you yeah do you mess with it
1: yeah Cause um I've had a good old play with with the Morphogene, with the make noise mm. morphogene, and I've um that with along with things like the what would it be? The René, the make noise yeah. and very much have been have used the sequencer on the one oh one and am a lot on the the Prophet Six as well. I'm not only about the physical I it must be something I have played. Yeah. It can be something that I have programmed. But that am um, manipulating in some way, still. That's a good point, actually. I'm not against that at all. A lot of the stuff that I've written recently has um, arpeggiated bleats and bloops in it.
0: Mm. Do you think you would write differently using arpeggiators if you didn't know how to play the keyboard properly? Do you know what I mean? In the sense, mm. like I, I do wonder, like, do you know, do, do drummers program patterns on an eight oh eight differently to someone like myself who's not a drummer do you know what I mean like does that does the practice inform inform it in that way
1: like that's made me think of so I've been having a bit of a go with a push with Ableton Mm. and some of the things that you can do with the like melodic instruments sampler instruments where you can have the notes sort of set up on the pads in different intervals so you play different shapes and in that in no way correlates to anything i know about playing the keyboard so it actually it's really quite exciting because i'm just going okay shape here a shape there i've heard it's quite good for guitarists in that sense because of it being set up or if it's been being set up in fourths for example but um yeah yeah so something like that can i can write differently and not let my head get in the way too much because it's a kind of going with feel in that sense is that if if that's what you mean
0: it's like where you're breaking all patterns basically and thinking about just just purely thinking about you know the the sound and not perhaps there are certain chords and like keys that you would your hands will naturally go to and fall to especially when you're composing
1: yeah and but just to reverse engineer that i actually find that if i'm programming drums I really like to do it on a keyboard. It's really weird. Like I've done it a lot on pads and it's great, but Hmm. there's something because the keyboard is such a familiar thing to me. And if I can hear a a rhythm in my head, I can replicate it with expression on the keyboard. And it's not just something that I've drawn in.
0: That makes does make complete sense. It's like that's the interface. There's obviously a huge portion of your brain that is like, like, dedicated to making your hands move around on this particular interface you know so
1: yeah well it's like it is an extension of my finger in that sense so there's no thinking about where I'm going it's it's thinking about the the musical aspect not the but yeah I in in the in the reverse sense I also like to put myself in an in an unfamiliar situation for that reason so that so that I might come up with something that I wouldn't do normally. Like When I was at university, I didn't have a keyboard with me for the first year. Um, all I had was an, an acoustic guitar, so I had to write on on guitar. And it wasn't my main instrument, so I was writing in a completely different way. Although I didn't end up using any of those songs, so maybe it was
0: well, a bad idea. You learned something. <laughs> yeah. There was... um. Yeah, another Apex Twin quote, he was talking about the fact that, I think he was talking about microtonal music, but he's talking about the fact that, you know, he says, like, I love it when I can program a synth so that every key plays the wrong note. Yeah. And because that forces me to really, you know, to to rethink about how I think about music, basically.
1: Yeah, Um,
0: And that's, I don't know if you can do that on a profit, like, detune you know or like incorrectly tune each note I and mean, i'm sure you can on things like the you know like the rolly seaboard and stuff and certainly you can do that on pressure points like the module because you can you have to freely tune each note
1: yeah you can kind of do it on a well not every note but on the um the Korg monopoly each oscillator yes. yeah it's not the same thing but you know it gives us it gives a certain vibe
0: yeah By detuning each note, then it's like, oh.
1: But one way I have managed to do that unintentionally recently with a keyboard is because I do, I love kind of concrete and I love to sample and mangle things. And so if I kind of sample a note, just use something like drum rack in Ableton, sample different notes of whatever object, put them randomly in, but yeah. play it on a keyboard so that it completely doesn't correlate at all to the notes that I'm playing. Um, so I'm so I'm not allowed to think about the notes that I'm playing because there's no point. That's quite interesting.
0: Yeah, that that is exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, I need to try that.
1: Yeah, do it. I recommend it.
0: Now um, I want to like pick your brains about a totally, but it probably does relate to music in some way because it's so much of this is to do with sound and. Um, you know acoustic texture it's, but it's to talk about sci-fi and horror films oh uh, <laughs> if we're going to this desert island what are your sci-fi and horror films that you're taking
1: oh no that's a horrible question
0: i'm not just oh. going to say one so i mean it can oh. be i guess it can be a highlight you know what is in your movie night
1: um there's got to be a john carpenter film in there
0: do you approve of the fog
1: i've i very much approve Good. antonio b yeah let's say the fog then
0: <laughs> that's good that's good and that's that's completely selfish of me because i just want to watch the fog so that's my favorite john carpenter i'm not actually I, I don't know that many of his films and like halloween and well so, halloween is a classic yeah
1: so i've never um, watched
0: it i've never watched it I'm really sorry
1: it's okay i'll forgive you that, i um, apologize
0: <laughs> I'm doing my research. the
1: thing is is pretty yes uh, it's a thing
0: Holy shit, I have watched... So The, the Thing and The Fog are the, the two I've watched the most. Can you describe The Thing to the audience for, for people who've not... what? How do you sum that film up?
1: Mm. There's, there's lots of snow and m- really freaky-looking monsters that are actually morphed, possessed version of people or animals that they've killed. It's getting a bit dark. I'm actually literally sitting in the dark as well.
0: <laughs> oh my god! Because
1: oh <laughs> I haven't got to turn the light on. Um, <laughs> and and I think the the thing that really puts you on edge about it is that it's that, that thing. classic. It's the classic thing that I can <laughs> stop saying the word. Um, it's the classic thing that. Um, you know, it's a—it's the idea of, I guess, being possessed or something, and it could be anybody that you know could not be, be who you think they are, and it could be anyone in this room right now, kind mm. of thing. Mm. And that's—that's that's what puts you on edge for the whole movie.
0: And I think it—it it certainly, and it keeps the stakes very high because um, what is unique to the thing, I would say, is how brutal it is when. You know, with what happens to the people, like like being possessed, is not in a lot of films can mean that they become a bit. That's not really it. Zombie-like it? and like, oh, you know, Steve's possessed and he's just like. Ugh. Whereas in the thing, it it means that Steve literally transmutes into this horrific. It's like the ultimate body horror. Yeah. Like n- nightmare fuel. Like they become like his head rips off at one point and then is and then grows legs like a spider and then scuttles around the floor you know and that's after his like the person was attempting to like administer like what they've got those like shocky paddle things and he's about to push the shocky paddles down on the guy's chest and suddenly sort of the entire guy's chest opens oh, up like a mouth yeah, it's that and bit. eats the, the guy's hands and his hands rip off and then his head comes off and turns into a spider and it's just like, and there's a pustulous sort of tangible wet quality to all of the, <laughs> it's really awful. Um, it truly is like, I would say it's the thing is unique in the sense that Even now, and even knowing that they're like, oh, it's it's all cheesy sort of, you know, it's all just like bits of rubber. Mm. But it is truly shocking. Yeah. Still.
1: It is. I think it's the combination of that. It's the shock and the
0: suspense. What is the music in the thing? I can't think of the... So the music... Although it's more, it sounds, is it Morricone?
1: yeah, it is. So it's, yeah. but it's in the style of John Carpenter, isn't it? It's <laughs> essentially, um, it's great.
0: Oh, it has the bow bow. You know, like probably the best yeah. two bow bows. The two, or, like or right the best one the end, note.
1: There's one moment that I can picture with the bow bow. <laughs> it sounds like um, well, I don't know what it is, maybe an Oberheim or something.
0: I think it must be. Isn't it? That's the sort of Carpenter's classic synth. Yeah. there's a bit the the very end where they're just sat there quietly and then just you get the bow bow and it's like it's pretty righteous it's like it's kind of the sound from a uh, I don't know like a almost it feels appropriate to be like a cop film or some sort of like but it Mm. in this context it's just doom laden it is I can't remember any of the notes other than that one but then I suppose that's true of like the Jaws soundtrack as well I
1: can remember the a lot of his soundtracks are memorable. Like, have you seen Assault on Precinct Thirteen? That's a. And then there's Escape from New York, which we played in the Moog Ensemble. Actually, the, the soundtrack for. And I got the job of doing the, beep, 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 sotto, <laughs> which I absolutely loved. Well, not just that, but you know,
0: quite hard to just play like a constant like like beep 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 beep. I well, find that, that really difficult. was,
1: okay, like. oh, I did play it. I was going to say it was um, clocked, but it wasn't. It was, <laughs> I it was played. Mm. I think because what wasn't played was the, there's like a, a noise hat type thing, like a
0: kind of
1: thing that's being clocked, but maybe I think everything else is played in real time. Anyway, yeah, sci-fi and stuff. Sci-fi movies, that's quite hard. Well, actually, no, going back to horror, it might sound like a bit of a cliche, but I will always go back to Psycho. I'm a huge Mm. fan of Hitchcock. Mm. Maybe maybe not just Psycho, maybe some of the other ones as well, like The Birds. And I don't know if if you've seen Rope by Hitchcock. It's a lesser known one, but it's amazing. I would highly recommend it. These ropes, the one, but that's more suspense. With than the horror. the box, yeah,
0: yes, I have seen. There's that.
1: something in the box. Well, it's not actually. A, I, I'm not giving anything away by saying it because they reveal it at the beginning. There's a body in the box, and they have a party and invite everyone round, and use and the box party. as a table, as a dining table. <laughs> but the the whole thing is filmed. Um, with the exception of running out of tape and having to change tape, it's all done as one long shot. And every yes. time they would run out of tape or about to run out of tape, they would zoom into something. Yeah. I can't remember if each time it was somebody's back, or maybe just one one of the times they'd zoom into someone's back and then zoom out again and it'd be a new tape.
0: So you use like careful little like covers and then the, so it feels like it's one shot. Yeah. Even though it technically isn't.
1: Yeah yeah I would highly recommend
0: I actually have watched it i've been I've forgotten it that I need to rewatch yeah it's just that sort of so well constructed and tight and like every single thing in those films is in there for a reason you know it's that sort of concept of nothing is fluff yeah everything is is carefully like thought through and tight and yeah
1: yeah and he even made a point of saying I think probably that every everything. There shouldn't be one thing in shot that is not there for a reason that isn't serving a purpose. Yeah, and you could think that way musically as well if you wanted to sort of think about writing. You know, if you are writing, producing, and you know what elements you are because I, I, I find it's one of the things I find really hard is knowing what to let go of and knowing what not to let mm. go of. If you've thrown a load of ideas down, what it, what is, what has a purpose there, and what doesn't kind of thing
0: how much can you take away and have it still work Mm, yeah so what is the future of music technology oh my hazel mills
1: oh i don't do you know what the this whole situation that's happening now is making me feel slightly apprehensive slightly anxious about the future of, well, maybe maybe there's opportunities, but it's sort of feeling a bit like more is going to happen in in the virtual sense. There's going to be a lot more remote collaborating um, and a lot more in the box kind of thing. I worry that that. Well, no, maybe I don't worry. Do you know what? I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, wow.
1: I'll have to think about that
0: one. Definitely.
1: Yeah, go on. Go on. No, you go.
0: I was going to say we definitely do need better ways. I've been playing around with that. Tim Exile's Endless app is very good Ah. as a way of um, highly recommend playing with that as a way of like remotely asynchronously making music together. It's kind of like the musical equivalent of that game where you have a piece of A4 paper and someone draws a head and folds it over and the next person does the you know does the shoulders and so on. And what's the
1: name of the app?
0: So it's called Endless, but with three S's. Um, hmm. endless. Um, Tim and Tim XR. And it's like a sort of, um, you know, the kind of layout is like a bit like a push in the sense that you've got some sounds and you've got a grid. Um, but the concept of it is that you bake audio at every turn. So whenever you make a change, you hit a commit button and it bakes the audio into a new sort of scene, what would be a kind of... Um, is it scenes enabled to, you know, the horizontal mm. sort of line, yeah. you know, you kind know, of creates a new version of those. And it's very forward in that sense. And it's, i.e. that the music you make on it, you're always thinking about what to do next, not what you've done in the past. I find it really unique in that way. That but is good. It's a good way of collaborating. And it's also, you can plug other instruments into it. Like, you know, if you've got an audio interface that goes into your phone or an iPad and there is a desktop app. Yeah, it really is quite interesting.
1: I would like to play musical consequences more. I'm yeah. quite excited by that. I I said I was worried about <laughs> there being more remote collaboration, but I think what I mean is as, as long as it doesn't mean that there's less meaningful interaction going on as a result, but probably won't be. You know, well, while, while we can't have physical interactions, this is a really great... I think it's actually... There are many good reasons for the the fact that this is happening now in our lifetime at this time where we've where we're kind of mostly equipped to deal with continuing certain things, you know without having to leave the house <laughs> mm. um and i've I've been wanting to do more remote collaboration actually, so that sounds quite fun and the idea that you're kind of looking forward rather than looking back. That sort of reminds me of a a book that I was like obsessed with for a bit actually it's called the songwriter's what's it called Frustrated songwriter's Handbook and it's just like some some really amazing techniques and tips for if you feel like you you've got writer's block or even if you don't, and the idea is that you' that you're not agonizing for long periods of time over one idea but you just keep moving forward and you keep exercising the muscle and you just yeah so that sounds good i've written that down that app i'm gonna check it out amazing cool
0: thanks very much thanks for your time
1: you are welcome yeah it's been fun
0: and stop. Oh, yeah, there you go. Hazel Mills. Thank you, Hazel, for giving your time. What an awesome chat. I love that. That was just a perfect ramble (laughs) Uh, through a whole manner of different things loads of interesting things to sort of look up and learn more on pierre bastien remember mentioning the sort of like musical contraptions um and of course as i said i've linked to um some of the performances with the will gregory moog ensemble and particularly that eddie parker piece it is linked down below so again thank you hazel for being awesome and letting me chat to you and thank you for chatting loved it I will invite you to please consider the links down below. There is the Black Lives Matter card that I mentioned that has organisations that you can support. If you'd like to lend your support for the movement that is going on, please consider doing so. Please consider also putting some money towards afrorack.org's organisation. They're doing very, very cool things in Chicago. And thank you to our sponsors. They are signal sounds the beautiful signal sounds in glasgow buy things from them at signalsounds.com and also thank you to skillshare for sponsoring this episode there is that link down below if you would like to explore your creativity and learn yourself some new skills so that you can make some new stuff please check that out there is the premium subscription go give it a click get yourself two months of free learning that's all thanks for listening